how do you classify success? How can you say, I am a success? Or how can you say, I'm a failure? We're in the midst of graduation, and it's a big deal. Eli graduated. I guess you were there. You were here, actually. He was actually graduated in here. Did everyone get to attend that graduation? It was a big deal. He had a cap and gown on. I got a picture of it to prove it right in this place. And it was a big deal. He was successful completing four-year-old preschool. And he's excited about that. I mean, he's now how old? He's now five. He has successfully accomplished preschool. He is ready for kindergarten. And he lets you know he is. He's good to go. We identify success in different ways, don't we? For some of you, success is riding a motorcycle. How many of you ride motorcycles? Well, I saw about a thousand motorcycles coming off of the interstate this morning, coming into and across your path here, right in front of your church. There were hundreds of them, and I thought, I guess everybody that attends here rides a motorcycle. (laughs) Some would consider success in owning a motorcycle. I consider success in not having to ride a motorcycle. How do you define success? I want us to look at it this morning. Rick Warren, who is one of, if not the most dominant Southern Baptist pastor in the world. You may or may not like what he does. You may not know anything about Rick Warren. But he's the most influential Southern Baptist pastor in the world. His wife has cancer, and it's significant, I'm told. He was asked, how do you define life in a nutshell? He said, life is the preparation for eternity. Life is the preparation for eternity. From that perspective, how are you doing? Are you successful as you're preparing for eternity? He said, life is like railroad tracks. You have God's purposes and life's problems. And you have to decide, are you going to major on life's purposes, or are you going to major on life's problems? Because in carrying out life's purposes, there are problems. But in the problems, you are carrying out God's purposes. So how are you doing with those railroad tracks? Are both going well? 
In the midst of your problems, do you see God's purposes? In the midst of God's purposes, are you dealing with His problems? With life's problems? Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. One of my favorite sermons in the whole Bible. Paul has completed his third missionary journey. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And he is forewarned that when he gets there, there are going to be major problems. And he is told by significant spiritual leaders of that day not to go. Do not face those problems at Jerusalem, for there's pain in those problems. And he stops off to visit with the leadership, the elders, of Ephesus. Now, we know that he was with this church group for at least three years. He started in the synagogue, but his approach to ministry was such that it was different. And they ran him out of the synagogue. So he started preaching on the streets. And many, many came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it was kind of in that perspective that he realized, you know, my ministry is not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And now he's come back to visit the leadership of this church. And he shares this phenomenal sermon, and it, we're not going to look at all the sermon. We're only, only going to look at the first part. There's actually four parts to this sermon, and it would take all day long. And I'm on a schedule, and you're on a schedule, and we don't like to stay after one o'clock. So we're just going to take the first part of the sermon. But if you want to really dig into this sermon, he looks backward, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And then he looks forward. And then he looks inward. And then he looks upward. That's the outline of the sermon. The sermon begins in verse 18, which is where we're going to begin. And it concludes in verse 36, or really 35, with a great quote of Jesus himself. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at this. Here's how he... Here is the invitation of his sermon. He says this, It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the essence. That's the capsule of his sermon. And that really is the capsule of the life of Paul. You have two kinds of people in the world. You have two kinds of people in this church. You have the givers. They're always figuring out a way to give. To give through prayer. To give through praise. To give through being involved in a particular element of the life of the church. They're givers. We think of giving financially. But givers give in every way. Paul was a giver. And then you have the takers. We live in a world of takers. What's in it for me? 
What's in it for me and mine? If it's not for me and mine, I'm not interested. Because I want to receive. And Paul said, Jesus said this, and it's the only time we have this quote from Jesus himself. We do not have this quote in the Gospels. So it was a statement that Jesus had made that had oral tradition, had been coming down orally to others, and Paul had picked up on it. Maybe Jesus said it to him personally there on the road to Damascus. We're not sure. But Paul made it his life concept. His road to success, if you would. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now I want to begin in verse 18. The idea is, it is kind of the farewell address, if you would. It's kind of the farewell sermon to this church. And when they came to him, that's when the leaders of the church at Ephesus came to Paul, Paul said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials or with testing, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. For I did not shrink from from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly as well as from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await. Verse 24. If you're looking for a life verse, there's none better in the Bible. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Lord, in the midst of this church... I would pray that you would rise up leaders. That you would get hold of their lives and impact them so powerfully that they have the power of thy Spirit. They are bound by your Spirit to do the work of the kingdom. Lord, in a world that is so self-centered, so glued on what I want, it is very difficult to break the bonds of our culture 
and release ourselves to be servants. But Lord, might we have as our motto in life, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And might in giving we serve in a way to accomplish the work of your kingdom. For we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The future of the church. How's, what vision do you have of the future of this church? You were to say, the future of this church is, how would you define it? I was with a person who is a leader in a dying church. You don't have to go very far from here to find a dying church. You probably don't have to go very far from here to find a alive church either. What's the difference in a dying church and a alive church? What is the difference? How can you identify saying our church is dying? Or our church is alive and well? Let me tell you, it's not about the music. Satan has used that tool to our disadvantage. During my wife's illness, we're home a good bit and we listen to gospel music many, many hours a day. We record any place we can and use television, and uh, the gospel classics. Some of you wouldn't know anything about those. We listen to over and over and over and over again. Because it's the only DVDs I can really find with great Christian music. But there's some that get hooked on Gaither stuff. Say, that's my music. Others of you say, I can't stand that stuff. I'm into the other classes. Churches do not rise and fall on music. This guy said, we'll be successful if we can have 200 in attendance. I said, well, according to the location where this church is, and they have 17 acres, I said, you should be running a 1,000. We're running about 50. But attendance is not a mark of a successful church. When I was in Cuba, I preached in Cuba to one of the underground churches. One of the most successful churches I've ever preached in. It was in the backyard with the chickens and the hogs and the garden. But I'm going to tell you what. When the Word of God was proclaimed, the hogs and the chickens and all were silent. And the people of God worshipped. And they were profoundly impacting that area. They were compelled to worship whether they had a building or not. There were buildings like these, so the numbers nor the buildings have anything to do with a successful church. Paul, I believe, gives here in verse 19, and it's here that we want to just spend the rest of our time together on. The key to success 
It's the key to a successful marriage. It's the key to being successful parents. It's the key to being a successful teenager. It's the key to being successful church. Because there's not one way to be successful and another way to be a failure. Success from God's perspective is all the same, no matter what you're into. I want to reread this verse. It says this, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with testing or with trials which have come upon me through the plots of the Jews. The future of the church the future of any endeavor you'll be into, as to whether you'll be successful or not, will be determined by how you serve the Lord. Amen? Are you all silent listeners, or are you involved? I'm into participative worship. It's not for you to sit still while I instill. It's for the Lord to instill in you as He instills in me a word from His Word. Okay? Y'all with me? Are y'all with me? Let's see if you really are. Are you really with me? Amen. Ready to go. What does it mean to biblically serve the Lord? Say, I want to be a success in life. I want, to be, I want to be successful in my retirement years. What does it mean to serve the Lord biblically? Well, there's actually three words there. You get them there? Serve the Lord. Put that put back up. Back up. Right there. Leave that right there. Serve. What does it mean to serve? Come on, what does it mean to serve? Now you can put the next one up. It means there's a lowliness about me. There is a submissiveness about me. I am serving. I am your servant. I wait on you. I do whatever you tell me to do. The idea of serve is the idea, I'm your slave. How many marriages could be saved, for example, if each mate made a commitment to be the slave to the other one? Come on now. Would that have an impact on your marriage? Say, my task is to serve you. How can I serve you? What can I do today to meet your needs. It is a submissiveness. I believe if you study the New Testament's declaration for marriages, that's what marriage is about. It's about two people who come together to serve each other. You know, today we say, well, he just doesn't meet my needs anymore. She just doesn't meet my needs anymore. That's not what marriage is about at all. What marriage is about is serving my mate, 
So service is submissive. And to serve the Lord, the other two words there, what does it mean? The Lord. The Lord is the concept of Jesus Christ. The one of authority, the one who has power, the one who controls my life. Everybody is under control of something. We have a new control factor in our culture. And it's playing havoc with our culture. Prescription drugs have come to control many people's behaviors. And it's a very dangerous. I do more counseling with people who have gotten hooked on prescription drugs than are hooked on illegal drugs. They're controlling them. They have to have them to go to sleep. They have to have them to wake up. They have to have them to eat. They have to have them not to eat. We have become a drug-driven culture. I had an uncle, Uncle Donald, who lived to be 95. And he wouldn't take any medication for anything. And he was about 80 years old. He took an aspirin. He said, man, that thing will activate. I mean, that, that brings you lots of energy. That'll heal about anything that ails you. Now, how many of us lay out the pills we take to wake up and the pills we take to go to bed? We have to be very careful what controls us and what we control. Paul said, the Lord Jesus, His authority... His power controls me. Amen? How many of you would admit, do you know what? I don't make any decisions on my own. I don't make any decisions from anybody else either. Nobody makes any decisions for me except the authority in my life, Jesus, my Lord and Savior. He makes all the decisions in me and for me and through me, for I'm his slave. The future of this church depends on how many members it will have who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your greatness as a church will be determined by that. It's not how well this place is heated or air-conditioned. It's not how soft your pew is. It is how willing you are to say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a businessman one time whose business was failing. And I spoke in passing, it's been 15 years ago now, about the need to dedicate your business to the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be in control of it. He called me on Monday and he said, Doc Jett, uh, you said something yesterday in your sermon that just has caught me and 
All night long I've thought about it, and I would you come over to our business, and could we have a dedication service of our business today, dedicating this business to the Lord Jesus Christ? I said, I'll be there. Went over there, and that day we dedicated, the business became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So its success or its failure is not dependent upon what I do, It's dependent on what the Lord Jesus Christ does in me, and He does through me. Retirees who are successful, even though they may even become shut-ins, are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe I said this before. My oldest son, David, who's also a pastor down in Mississippi now, said, Mom, how are you going to handle this cancer? She said, we've trusted the Lord with everything else. We will trust the Lord with this cancer. Do you have anything in your life you cannot give over to the Lord? Do you have any attitude in your life that's not consistent with the Lord Jesus Christ? I ask you. Do you want to be successful? Or do you want to live in mediocrity? Do you want to be a failure? According to the biblical concept of success, it begins being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he defines what it is. He said, I'm a servant. The first word he says, humility. I serve the Lord with humility. One of the problems we have in churches, we have so much pride that we won't humble ourselves before the Lord. Here's the way we do church. I was talking with a church that's also struggling. I've gotten in retirement, I I preach at a lot of churches, and most of them are just dead. And they've got a major constitution and bylaws. And in that thing, I'm telling you what, you'd think it was so rigid. said, we can't do that because our bylaws won't let us. I said, well, tell me in the Bible where bylaws are and where a constitution is. I said, I've never pastored a church that had a bylaws and constitution because it's not biblical. It's just a way of controlling. Now, I'm not against having constitution and bylaws, but it's not the controlling factor of, this, of a church that's going to be successful. A church humbly comes before the altar of God's grace, and yes, as was sung so ably, God's mercy and says, you give us your direction for us today. It's not about yesterday. It's not even about tomorrow. It is about what you would call us to be and to do. How do we wait the tables of today? For if we're not nourished today, we will be hungry, we will starve to death tomorrow. Or if we try to feed off of yesterday, 
we'll miss the blessings of today. There's a sense of humility. You stand before the altar of God's grace, ready for His food. I was raised on farm. I know that's not kosher these days. Most of you all didn't milk the cows before you came to church. I bet you didn't even slop the hogs. Or feed the chickens. But I was around that. I grew up with that. And I'm going to tell you what. I was the Lord of the hog farm. Do you know why? I was in charge of the food. And when they saw me coming, where do you think they went? Went to the back 40 or the front 40? They stood at the trough. Because I was their Lord. I was the one that determined what they were going to eat, when they were going to eat. I was controlling them. Jesus is the only food source you need. The only food source you need. Don't tell me how much you can do. Tell me how much the Lord can do. For you and with you. Humility. Second, he says, we serve the Lord with what? What's that word up there? Let's say that out loud. How long has it been since you really cried? I have a set of triplets that are grandkids as well. My son has them. They live next door to me. And they come over ready or not. That's a good thing. They come running in there. They're two and a half now. And you know what? They got to crying the other night. You know what they were crying over? Their sippy cup. Now, you all may not even know what a sippy cup is. I am very familiar with sippy cups. I got four grandkids that handle them sippy cups. Lyle is, I mean, Eli is beyond the sippy cup. But... uh, There is a favorite sippy cup. How a favorite, how a cup becomes the favorite, I don't know. But the one that gets the favorite, what's the rest of them do? Let's say it out loud. What's the rest of them do? Many people cry about sippy cups. Many people cry about sippy cups. They don't get their favorite. So they cry. I'm glad I'm not that way. Come on now. We're all that way, right? Come on, we're all that way. Are we not all there, huh? Come on. Have we not all got our favorite chair? Have we not all got our favorite TV program? Have we not all got our favorite whatever to whatever to whatever? And if it's not there, what do we do? Come on, let's say it loud. Now, what do we do? We cry. It's exactly right. What brought Paul to tears? What did he cry about? Look at verse 37. Y'all still got your Bibles open. I'm preaching out of the Bible. Verse 37 of chapter 20, it says, The sermon's over, 
And when they had said these things, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them, and they began to weep aloud. What were they weeping about? What brought them to tears? What would bring this church to tears? What would you really cry about here? You know what they were crying about? They were crying over the joy of what God had done in Ephesus through the work of Paul. There were tears of joy. Three or four weeks ago, I participated with Inglewood in a number of things, and we did the Lord's Supper. When I came to Inglewood, we had a congregation about this size. It was about 350 or so. And I served, we, we had tables over here and here and here, and 20-some-odd deacons serving. And the Lord just spoke to me this morning, that, that morning as we were serving, the joy of seeing our people gather. We had about 2,500 that morning. And I wept all the way through all three services. I could not stop my tears. They were not tears because I wasn't the senior pastor anymore. They were tears of joy of how God had blessed that church. They were great. I could look out in the congregation and I would see individuals. I would see families. I'd been there long. I'd served them for 24 years. I'd been there long enough. I'd seen some of them before the birth of their children into the graduation of their children. And they would just, I just was in tears all morning. How long has it been since you had tears of joy over the great work God is doing in your church? To where you can't be controlled. There are tears, there, there's so many tears you just cry about. You cry with excitement. Well, you're going to cry to graduation to your kids, aren't you? You all don't have tears about anything? Aren't there tears of joy when your children accomplish something great? Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Then have tears of joy when you see your church flourishing as it gives itself unto the Lord in humility and you see the Lord working in your midst, and you can see some great and mighty things He's doing. But there was also tears there, and it doesn't say why these tears were there, but there were tears that they weren't going to be in this place again. Hello? Paul was going on. And what do you want to do when things are great? What do you want to do? Come on, you want to stay there or you want to move on? You want to stay right there? Absolutely. Absolutely. We as Southern Baptists did it well in the 50s. And we, will, we still, some churches are still in the 50s. They really are. They haven't been able to get out of the 50s. We had a million more in 54. Some of you remember that. And those were our heydays, our high days. We said, 
keep us in the 50s. That's when we did it right. No, that's when we did it right for the 50s. Paul said, I'm moving on to Jerusalem. Sometimes you have tears when you know you've got to move on. The Bible says there's a time for birth and there's a time for what? Death. It's how you handle birth and it's how you handle death, but it's how you handle the, the, the dash. How you can move beyond birth and see the dash move toward death and you see the awareness that you're going to have to make some changes. You're going to have to be in a new area, under new circumstance, in a new situation. Some of you in your Bible study have just completed your study or completing your study in the book of Genesis. Can you imagine Jacob at 130 years old leaving Canaan and going where? Where did he go? Went to Egypt. The ungodly place, Egypt. Now some of you are not that old. Let me say that again. Some of you are not that old, but you're more set in your ways than Jacob was at 130. You're not moving. You're not changing. You're not going where God has called you to go. You're going to stay in the comfort zone of yesterday and miss the blessings of tomorrow. Yes, there are tears in transitions. But there's also joy that the Lord not only has used me in the past, hello, come on, has used me in the past, but it's going to do what? Use in the future. Do you know most of the New Testament that Paul wrote was after this occasion when he was imprisoned? The greatest work Paul probably did was after he left Ephesus and went toward Jerusalem. So sometimes we have to say, you know what, I am just have tears of joy, but I have tears of sorrow that we've got to make some changes in order to be effective in the days ahead. Third word there in that verse is what? Come on, let's say it together. How many of you would be willing to say, I am in a great trial right now? There's one. There's two. There's three. The rest of you are lying. All of us have trials enough for every day. Come on. All of us are always in the midst of trials. The word there is testing, really. All of us are being tested today as to whether we will take the circumstance of today and use that circumstance in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our test. That's the final exam, as a matter of fact. You fail this and you fail. It's not about the fact I have a trial of cancer or I have a trial of a lost my job or I have a trial of a broken marriage. It's not that word at all. There's another word for that. 
This word is, I am being tested as to whether or not I will allow Jesus to be Lord of this particular day in my life. And that's the question. You teenagers that sit here, will you make him Lord of your life today? I have, I have grandkids at every age, just about. I have two 16-year-olds. One's finishing his junior year, the other finishes his sophomore year. The last thing they think about sometimes is the Lordship of Christ. Because they have got their own agenda. Now, you're all probably not that way. You're a bunch of godly kids. You probably never have a selfish thought in your life. You probably say, now, Lord, you're controlling my life, and I'm going to let you control today as you prepare me for tomorrow. If you're not there, you better get there. Because the Lord's testing you in this area of your time. Are you willing to take that relationship? You see, a teenager, let me tell you about teenagers. Teenagers are more sensitive about their peer group than they are about the Lord, usually. You don't believe it? Watch how they comb their hair. Watch what dress codes they wear. What is she going to think about this? What is he going to think about this? Let me tell you what. It doesn't matter. In eternity, it will not matter. But let me tell you what. If you serve the Lord today, it will make all the difference for all eternity. What is the Lord going to think? How consistent is my lifestyle today with what he had me to be? But let me tell you about the rest of this bunch out there. They're just a bunch of grown-up teenagers. And they're just like you. They say, what's she going to think about that? What's he going to think about that? What are they going to think about that? They're just grown-up teenagers. That's all they are. And they battle the same thing you battle. Will you make Jesus Lord for today? So that tomorrow you'll be fruitful in the work of his kingdom. Now, what are we going to do with all that? I don't know. It's really not about the church. The church is just made up of people. This church will be no greater nor weaker than the people who serve the Lord with humility, that serve the Lord with tears, and that serve the Lord with testing or trials. I ask you, where are you? Why are you here today? Why did you come to this place? Why did you take the energy to get up this morning and get ready and come. And some of you are probably sitting in assigned seats. I mean, if you're sitting over here, you probably always sit over here. And people would be disrupted if you were over there. One time, at long ago, I got tired of them sitting in the same place and I required them to swap sides. Everybody was mad. I mean, if you, want to get, if you want to get this church mad, require them to sit on the other side. 
and they will argue about that because you have got you. But let me tell you what. There is no comfort zone in serving the Lord. Come on now. Let me hear that. There's no comfort zone in serving the Lord. You're always on your way to Jerusalem. You're always on your way to another test, to another trial. And there'll always be people telling you not to go there. Because it'll be difficult. There'll always be people that say, don't do that. Because it'll be uncomfortable. Well, let me ask you, did Jesus live in the comfort zone? In the circumstances that He lived in? Or did He live under the Lordship of Almighty God? perfectly carry out that task. Do you want to be more like Jesus or more like your neighbor? 